Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And our text this morning will be verses 16 and 17. But again, I think we will start back at verse 13 as we read this morning. Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. There ends the reading of God's word this morning. Join with me in prayer before we walk our way through our text this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you revealed yourself to us so that we might know you. We thank you for the word of God that is in our language that we can understand. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who illuminates it for us so that we can know truth for sure. And so I pray this morning again that you will take the truths of your word and use them in our lives as you see fit. And that you will once again conform your church more to the image of your son, to the praise of the glory of your grace, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, if you were to walk down the street and ask people if they should go to heaven, most people would say yes. They would say, I'm good. At least I'm certainly better than most people. And that again shows you uh, humanity's self-love because they are always willing, if you take surveys, they are always above average. But they would always say, I I am more loving, I am better than most, I, I do good works, I do more good than bad, so God should accept me. And if we were measuring on human standards against one another, that just might be enough. But God says, that's not good enough. God says, actually, I have a perfect standard. I have a perfect law that must be kept. And therefore, you cannot earn it. You cannot keep it. Your standard is too low. And so this morning, we're going to see in in verse 17 the righteousness of God that comes through the gospel, a righteousness that's imputed and given. And so we recognize that there's a need for righteousness in it, and there's a righteousness that God will provide on our behalf so that we might know him and that we might be saved. Now, before we get into our text this morning, I want to remind us that as we have come through this book, Paul has given us his introduction and really laid out his credentials as to why we should read this book. And then he's given us some historical background and he's given us 
some, some of the ideas and reasons why he's writing this book. And then as he came, comes to verse 16 and 17, he really comes to the thesis of this book. And we've said that the book of Romans is about the gospel, and that is exactly what he says here in verses 16 and 17. And he and gives us kind of a, a nutshell of the gospel here in verses 16 and 17. And then he will use the whole rest of the book to expound these ideas. So as we go through some of these ideas, we're going to go through them in some detail, but if you are feeling drowned and feeling like you're not getting it, it's okay. We're going to come back to these concepts because Paul goes through them all in greater detail later on in the book. And so we're just going to give you kind of an overview and then we're going to come back and we're going to do that even in more detail. Repetition, repetition is good for learning and that's what Paul does in this book. And so he lays this out in a nutshell, which he will now give in greater detail through the book. Now we said as we came to verses 16 and 17, that Paul began his introduction to the gospel in sort of a, a way that's unexpected, maybe a surprising way, because he be begins with, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And you're kind of thinking, well, why would you start with that, Paul? And I think Paul understands two things. First of all, there's a human tendency to be ashamed of the gospel, and there's a tendency for us to be afraid of hu other human beings, to be man-fears rather than God-fears. But we also must recognize that the gospel itself is a shameful message. It is a message that has with it, and especially in Paul's time, was countercultural. You were speaking of a gospel that was shameful to a society that saw that the Messiah that you talked about was crucified like a common criminal, that he was humiliated in front of everyone. The Jews saw, saw their Messiah and said, How could God die? This is shameful. Cursed is anyone who is on a tree. And still today there's an offense to the gospel. People do not like to hear that they're responsible to a, to a, to a perfect God. They don't want to have God over top of them. They don't want to tell them, be told that they're sinners. They don't want to be told that they're less than perfect. They don't want to be told that they're not good enough. And so we bring a gospel that is offensive. And so as we bring it, we can sometimes feel shame because we, we do not like the rejection that comes. Even a rejection that Scripture says we should expect. So Paul then lays out for us in this passage six reasons not to be ashamed of the gospel. And we started off two weeks ago, or maybe three weeks ago now, with the first one, and we said that we shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. In other words, the gospel message used and taken by the Holy Spirit affects results. It's the means by which God brings people to salvation. And so it is, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as we give forth that gospel, there's a power that either softens people and brings people to Christ or it hardens them, but God brings the result. And so Paul says it's the power of God. This is God's means. God uses it and works through it. God does not save apart from the gospel. Now remember that. God does not save apart from the gospel because there are those who would come to you and say, you know what? God appeared to me in a dream. 
I saw his hand. We, I had one gentleman say, I saw the hand of God come down and scoop me up in a vision, and then I knew I was saved. But God says he saves through the gospel. The gospel is a message that must be heard. It is a message that the Holy Spirit must teach. And how do we hear? How shall they hear without a what? A preacher. And how shall they hear unless they be sent? In other words, the, go- the gospel must be heard, whether it is read or whether it is verbally given, God saves through the gospel. Now, we've kind of touched on this second point, but we should not ashamed of the gospel because it produces salvation. It is God's way of saving and spiritually rescuing people. That foolish message is what God uses to bring people to eternal salvation from eternal life to eternal death. Number three, we saw that Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it requires no human work, no human merit. It is for everyone who believes. It comes through faith. It doesn't come through having to work. It's not earned. God simply gives it as a gift. All we do is extend and reach what God has given. Number four, it's a universal message for everyone. He said it's to the Jew first and to the Greek. And so certainly chronologically we know it went to the Jews first. God chose them and he gave them the gospel first. He came to them first on earth. He came to them as his people. But Paul's point here is this. It's for everyone. It's for everyone. It's not just for the Jew. There's not one gospel for the Jew and another for the Gentiles. It is for every single person. But today, Paul will give us two more reasons why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. Two more reasons. Number, number f- the fifth reason is simply this. It promises righteousness. It brings about righteousness to you. And thirdly, and sixthly, sorry, it's always been the only way. It's always been the only way. So Paul comes here in verse 17 to the fifth reason. It promises righteousness. Look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The just, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So here Paul explains another reason not to be ashamed of the gospel. Specifically, it's the content of the gospel. It's about righteousness that comes from God and is credited to the sinner. Now, if you were to hear most gospel presentations that are given... They tend to be man-centered. They're about God making your life better. It's about God having a plan for your life. It's about God meeting all your needs. It's really about trusting in His grace and His forgiveness of sin, and that's really the content of it all. And God is seen as this indulgent Father who loves you the way you are. And really, salvation is mostly just a rescue from God's wrath, but that's it.
But that's not the true gospel. Because the gospel that is given is primarily and first and foremost about righteousness. It's about how can a sinful person, how can fallen man be righteous? How can he be in the presence of God? How can he be righteous enough? You can hear the words of Job. Job said this three or four times in the book of Job. How can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of a woman? After all, God says, Habakkuk says that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil. He can't approve it. Psalm 1 says the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Psalm 5, 4 says, no evil dwells with you. There's a problem here. How can man be good enough to be righteous with God? Well, the gospel is the answer to that question. And the central purpose of the gospel is to enable us to stand with righteousness in the presence of a holy God. You cannot be in his presence without being righteous. Now, the word righteous is an interesting word because in both Hebrew and Greek, it is more, it, it, it encompasses a sphere of law, or it's a, it's a courtroom term. And it can be, either one of these terms can be translated righteousness or justice. Now, in our English, we, we separate those two words completely. And we say you're either in right standing or, or, or justice is how we apply it. But the word righteousness in, in the, the language here encompasses both. And so righteousness describes on one hand conformity to the law, God's law. If you keep to the law, I'm righteous. And justice refers to God's rightly, at responding rightly to a person that's based on the conformity or lack of conformity to the law. So God's treating that person rightly based on whether they conform or don't conform to the law. That's justice. Now, when we think of righteousness and we think of righteousness and we apply it to God, there's two ways that righteousness is actually applied to God. First of all, God when we're speaking of righteousness, we're talking of God's moral excellence, his inherent moral excellence, his excellence. That's his character. God is by character, by nature, righteous. In other words, God is perfectly conforms to the standard which his is his own character. Therefore, he is in an, in of his, and is of himself righteousness. In other words, God does not have an outward standard of righteousness. God doesn't just have this set of rules that are outside of him where he goes and he measures himself and says, here's, here's the law, here are the things, the, the things that I must keep, and I measure myself against that. God is inherently morally righteous. That is who he is. And therefore, he is, it's the standard of his own uh, character. He doesn't measure himself by anything else. Deuteronomy 34, 32, 4 says, 
the rock, his work is per- his work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Again, speaking of his character, he is righteous. Righteous is our Lord, Jeremiah says. Jesus called his father the righteous father. This is the character of God. He is simply righteous. Completely independent of any other measurement. He is the measurement of righteousness. But righteousness is also referred to a second way when referring to God, and that's pertaining to his conduct, his right conduct. This is external to God. This is his actions. This is the actions that come out of his character. And he responds to other individuals based on their rightness or their wrongness, based on the conformity to his law. Psalm 89, 14 puts it this way. Righteousness and justice are a foundation of your throne. In other words, God reigns what? Righteously. That's how he reigns. He he is reigning righteously. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in what? All his ways, not some of them, all of them. So God is the standard of righteousness. God acts perfectly righteously and conforms to his own character at all times. Therefore, our standard of righteousness must be measured by God. We must adjust to God, not God to us. We don't say, well, that's not fair because God did that. We simply say it is right and fair because God has done it. Because he is the standard of righteousness and we must adjust to him. Well, because God is perfect, because God is fully righteous, because God is the standard of that, because he is by nature and by attribute and character completely righteous, it makes it impossible for us to be righteous. We can't be righteous on our own. In fact, Psalm says, in your sight, God, no man living is righteous. No one is righteous. All of us were born in Adam, were born into sin. None of us can now please God. Isaiah says, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are what? Like a filthy garment. Everything that we do, that we try to do for righteousness, everything that we try to work towards in our best moments is seen as what? Dirty rags. Excrement. Paul touches on this just, just over in chapter 3, verse 12. If you just flip over to page 3, uh, over a couple of pages to chapter 3, verse 12. This is the universal picture. Every time humanity is spoken of, he says this. There is none righteous, uh, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned together. They have all become useless. There is none that does good. There is not even one. 
No exception clause there. There's no exception clause. We might say, well, I can see where most people are that way, but I'm, I'm, I'm better than most. And Paul says, no, there's, there's no exception clause. Not even one. No one at all. Man's default position is to try to. Man wants to work himself to God. He wants to feel good enough. He wants to feel like he can earn his way. He thinks he's good enough for God. But God says, you're working your way in towards God or your self-righteousness is absolutely futile. You say, well, I'm better than most, really? He says, you fall infinitely short of his glory. Can you imagine? We, we could kind of picture it this way. I'm more righteous than you. We're going to go to the, to the Atlantic Ocean and we're going to try to jump towards Europe. All right? So off we go. Boom, right? I get in, well, two and a half feet. You get in 10 feet and you go like, wow, I am so much better than you. But the reality, how far is it to Europe yet? That's how far short we fall. And making those comparisons to one another is absolutely foolish because we are infinitely short of God's glory. So if you're standing here this morning and you're clinging to some hope as if somehow I can be good enough for God, don't. You can't be. Not on your own. Not in your power. So how can we be righteous who are by nature, and this speaking of unbelievers, are by nature and action all the time short of the glory of God? Well, Paul says in verse 17, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is what? Revealed. He says in chapter 321, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And so Paul says here, the, the, the righteousness of God is revealed, or the, better, maybe better translated, the righteousness from God has been revealed. In other words, this gospel has been revealed and reckoned to the believer. Paul says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. And again, he says in chapter 517, the gift of righteousness, the gift of righteousness. The gospel, you see, the reality of God providing us with righteousness that he demands, that is the gospel. Theologians call this concept justification. And Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel because it promises you the gift of God's righteousness, a righteousness that you cannot earn. And again, he, God demands perfect righteousness. Absolute perfection, just in case you still are clinging to that hope. Maybe, maybe I could be good enough. Maybe if I work hard enough. Maybe if I, if I read my Bible enough and I memorize it enough. And maybe if I, if I do enough good works. But God's standard is perfection. He says, be holy for I am holy. Be, you have to be as holy as I am. A holiness, a holiness that, and a righteousness that 
Hebrews says, without it, no one will see God. God cannot have that in his presence. James talks about that in James chapter 2, verse 10. He says, whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. What he's saying is this, the wages of sin is death. All right? It only takes one sin to die. At the moment that Adam and Eve ate of the apple, what? They died. Spiritually, they died. It doesn't matter how strong a chain is. You pull on a chain, it only needs what? One weak link and it's broken. And God says it only takes one sin. One sin and you are guilty of the whole law, meaning you are guilty of death because the penalty for sin is death. And so if you've ever failed to love like you should, if you've ever been, not been humble like you should, if you've ever lost your temper, if you've ever been proud, if you've ever been unkind, if you've ever been selfish, any, just one of those, once, you fall short. And I think if we're honest, then we know that no one here, no one here is righteous by that standard. We can go back to what Paul said. There is none righteous, not one. Nobody meets it. But there's good news. This is where the good news is. We have to have the bad news, right, in order to have good news, right? How do you know what you're being rescued from? How do you know what, what, you, what, what you're being saved from if, you, if you're not told? And that's where Paul says the righteousness of God demands, he gives us, it it comes in the gospel. In it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. So Paul's not ashamed because it promises righteousness. So that, the question then becomes, what righteousness does the gospel actually promise? What, 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 what righteousness does the gospel promise us? Well, there are really only two answers. There's only two answers to that righteousness. There's a wrong answer that m- most or all religions come up with. And that's called an inherent or infused Righteousness. In other words, I I can actually do what James says is impossible. I can keep the whole law. I can be obedient to God the whole time. I can do it by my good works. By doing good deeds. The Roman Catholic Church would tell you, well, actually, you can add to God's righteousness to your life, right? Right? You get baptized into the church. There's means of grace. And you need to, you get an infused righteousness. They confuse positional sanctification and justification. And they think that you can never, ever be justified before God. 
And for them, then, there's this continual cycle where you are declared righteous by God, you take communion, you are what? Righteous again. And then the moment you sin, you lose your righteousness. And now you've lost, really lost your salvation because you are no longer righteous and you can't stand before God. And therefore, they often if, if believe that when you die, if you haven't confessed your sins, you're going to end up in purgatory because you cannot be in the presence of God with sin. They're consistent with it. But they believe that somehow you can add to the righteousness that comes from God as you do good works. And this is consistent throughout religions. They continually think that you can work your way to God, that you can be good enough for God. But Paul says, that's not true. You can't earn your way. You can't, you can't be good enough. You actually can't keep the whole law. And in fact, the law was given to demonstrate that you couldn't. It demonstrated that you needed faith, that you needed grace, you needed mercy. So Paul says, the righteousness that the gospel promises, it's an imputed righteousness. It's an imputed righteousness. Paul says, There's a contrast here between the righteousness based on human effort and by faith. He says in Romans chapter 9, What then shall we say that the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel pursuing the law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And Paul, again, makes that contrast. The Gentiles got it because they attained it through faith. The Jews thought they could earn it. They thought they could be good enough, and they missed it. And that's why we said last week that the Jews in in Romans chapter 10, verse 3, for knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They simply thought that they could get there on their own. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, there's another kind of righteousness that comes through faith. He says in verse 8, a word of faith which we are preaching that if you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So there's that contrast, working for it or righteousness based on faith. Paul certainly understood that. In his spiritual autobiography in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says this, I wanted to gain Christ, right? I wanted to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but rather what? through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, I didn't try to work for it. I came by faith. So understand at the very heart of it, the gospel is telling you that the righteousness that you need cannot be achieved on your own. It can't, you cannot stand in your own righteousness. 
doesn't matter how much good works I do. It doesn't matter how much I try to please God. It's not enough. I need an alien righteousness. I need a righteousness that comes from outside of me. I need someone else's righteousness credited to my account. I can't do it myself. So the gospel at the heart of it, the theologians call it justification. I need to be justified. Justification is this process, is to be declared legal but it's to be declared legal, not just on the fact that God simply dismisses sin. God is holy and just and he must punish sin. But he does it on the basis of an accounting transaction. It's a thing called double imputation, where God credits our sins to Christ and his righteousness to us. And so in, it's interesting, God uses, he says here in Romans, that there's this transaction that takes place. Transaction number one, God does not credit our sins to us, but to Christ. Romans chapter four, verse three. And Paul is again speaking of Abraham. Abraham believed God. Abraham who was not following God, who worshiped other idols, believed God, and it was what? Credited to him as righteousness now to the one who works his wage is credited as a favor but rather as what is due so paul defines justification in financial terms the word credit he, that's used in verse 3 means to post a ledger or to put on one's account and that's where we get that old word imputation to put to someone's account And so I want to just look at that word. First of all, we see the transaction. God does not put our sins on our account as if we had committed them. Look at verse 8. As Paul is explaining and defending justification, he cites David in Psalm 32.8. And he says, Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not take into account. That's that same word for credit. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord does not credit to him. That's the idea, idea. He doesn't put those sins he's committed on his account. That's why Paul said, put it this way, not counting their trespasses against them. Isaiah speaks of he was pierced through for what? Our transgressions. Christ died to pay the penalty for sin. God credited our transgressions to Christ. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be what? Sin on our behalf. Christ didn't become a sinner. He was simply had our sin put to his account. And so God, by an act of grace, by an act of mercy, takes our sins and he credits them to Christ's account. And then he treated Christ on the cross like he had committed every one of those sins. And so the first part of this, of this transaction is God giving 
our sins and crediting them to Christ's account. That's the first imputation. That's the first credit. The next transaction is he credits Christ's perfect righteousness to us. Again, if we look at chapter 4, verse 6, it's talking about David. David speaking of the blessing of, on the man whom God credits righteousness, and he, he credits righteousness, notice, apart from the law. Apart from his obedience to the law, apart from his own efforts, there's nothing that he could do. It is a credit that is given to him on a financial term. It's like going into the bank and going to put money on your mortgage only to find that it's what? Completely paid off. Some, someone has put something to you onto your account and now that's put on our account is, is this righteousness. Now notice this, God does not declare us righteous because we are righteous. All right? You are not made righteous. You, are, you still are in a human body that sins. All right? But you get something better than that. You get an, infu- you get an alien righteousness that's credited to your account You don't have to pay the account. It's already been paid. Past, present, and future. So justification has nothing to do with me earning it. Nothing that is infused. It's by grace and by faith. And that righteousness, just in case we're unclear, comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. It is that perfect life that Christ lived here on earth. He was here for 33 years. And he lived a perfect life. Not once did he sin. And that's why he needed to be a human being. In order to die for humanity, for sinful humanity, we needed a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus Christ was that perfect sacrifice. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ became to us what? Righteousness. He became our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, again, God made him who knew no sin to be what? Sin on our behalf, so that we, here's the second transaction, might become the righteousness of God in him. So now God looks at us as if we had lived Christ's perfect life. God looks at us as if we had lived God's per- Christ's perfect life. And this is why God, on the basis of that, can then make the legal de- de- declaration not guilty. Not guilty. He didn't overlook sin. Sin was paid. We were credited with Christ's righteousness, and now we have access to the Father, not because we act righteously, but because we stand forensically in the courtroom having been justified and declared righteous, not guilty. And we can walk out of that courtroom and not pay the penalty because Christ has paid that for us.
Again, the word justify is a legal word. It's used in the context of the courtroom. And in Scripture, justify is always the opposite of to condemn or to pronounce guilty. It's always the opposite. It means to declare right, to be in right standing. And so the gospel is actually a magnificent exchange. It's not good. God cannot just forgive. He must have righteousness. We must be as righteous as he is. God can have nothing that is not as righteous as he in his presence. He can have no evil in his presence. And so he now exchanged for us and gives us the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I can't be ashamed of that. I can't be ashamed of a message that declares that we can stand righteous before God because of something that Jesus Christ has done. Now, we often don't live in the joy of the righteousness that we have. And sometimes we sin and we think, oh, how can I be a Christian? We sin and we think, oh, I mean, it was bad enough last week, but this week again. How, how did this happen again? But when Christ declared you righteous, when you got Christ's righteousness, he paid for past, present, and future sins. He paid for them all. He knew every sin that you would do. Now, it's not an excuse for us to sin, but he covered them all. Sometimes we don't live and enjoy our righteousness. We don't enjoy the fact and the reality of what God has done. And often we can stand in self-condemnation and feeling like we're going to be condemned. But God says, no, actually there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will never face the penalty of our sin. We will never have a, gir- a vilt- guilty verdict and, a, and the penalty that it deserves. And so we can stand in the freedom of being righteous before God. Paul, as he speaks about bringing a charge against the elect in Romans 8.33, says, who will bring a charge against God elects? Who, who can actually make a charge and say they, they don't deserve it? They're sinful. They're wrong. They don't deserve it. He says, well, God is the one who what? Justifies. God's the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Is it he who died? Yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand. In other words, Christ is at the right hand, interceding for us. He's the justifier. You can't bring a charge because we stand righteous before God. So Paul says, we need an alien righteousness, a righteousness that comes through the gospel, a righteousness that's imputed to us from a righteous God. How does it become ours? Well, he says at the end of verse, at the end of this phrase, from faith to faith, it's a gift. 
It's a gift revealed from faith to faith. What Paul means here is it starts with faith and it ends with faith. It's entirely a faith from the beginning to end. He's emphasizing that nothing but faith alone can save, give us the status of righteousness before God. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him from righteousness. Now Paul moves on here and brings us to the sixth and final reason why we should not be ashamed of the gospel. We should not be ashamed of the gospel because it has always been the only way to salvation. It has always been the only way. He says, as it is written in the end of verse 17, the righteous man shall live by faith. Literally, but the righteousness out of faith, or maybe even better, the one who is righteous by faith shall live, shall live. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4. He quotes the same text in Galatians 3.11. And this little quote at the end of verse 17, many see as as the apostles' text and the rest of Romans as his sermon on that text. In other words, Romans is actually a sermon on one verse from Habakkuk. I really like Paul, don't you? An entire letter on one verse. It's great. Now understand what Paul means here. You understand the context of this verse in Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 2, the prophet is really struggling with what God has just told him. God has said, because of the sin of Israel, I'm going to send Babylon on to punish Israel. And and Habakkuk is devastated. And, and he's really struck, if you remember the book, he's struck that God could use such evil people to punish God's people. How could God do that? And he's wondering, what's going to happen to God's people? If they're going into exile and Babylon's going to punish them, uh, will God allow his people to be exterminated? Will he allow them to, to put an end to the Jewish nation? And Habakkuk responds here in this verse with a resounding no. The righteous by faith shall live. And again, he's speaking here primarily of supernatural life, of spiritual life, of eternal life. And Habakkuk says, there's no, is not an end of God's people. Those who are righteous by faith shall live eternally with supernatural life. That's only, that only God gives. Now, many Jewish people would die in the, as in the captivity. But if they were righteous by faith, they would go on living through all eternity. That's God's point to Habakkuk. You see, in quoting Habakkuk, Paul wants us to know that it has always been God's plan to declare believing sinners rightly, solely by faith. It was true in Habakkuk's time, and it was true, as we learned in chapter 4, in Abraham's time, long before it was true in David's time, as he also referenced in chapter 4. In other words, he's saying, this has always been God's plan. Salvation by faith that gives us a righteousness before God. This has been God's plan from the beginning that the righteous 
by faith will live. They will be given eternal life. This is the promise of the gospel. And so Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for its power. We thank you that it brings salvation. We thank you that it is open to all. We thank you that it produces righteousness, a righteousness that's given to us from our Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise and thank you that it has always been your way, that you have always planned to save and give righteousness by faith. I pray that we would trust in the power of the gospel, that we would not be ashamed, that we would give it and dispense it to everyone, and that we would again rejoice in his power. We would rejoice in its salvation, I pray in your name. Amen.